Um, it's good to be with you on Easter Sunday, uh, one of the best, kind of most exciting Sundays of the year. Only Sunday I can remember ever at Antioch where we had balloons. Um, it's, uh, by the way, how many of you, raise your hand, were at the sunrise service this morning? I heard there's about 150 people and only 10 of you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, at least 10 of you came back. Uh, so Easter... Um, is on the church calendar as kind of the day of celebration. It's also one of the, the few days of the year where I'm most reminded that I live in a house full of girls. Um, if you could have been at my house this morning, you'd know what I meant. Um, it's Easter dresses, it's joy, it's, it's looking forward, it's hope. Um, and uh, I want to talk about gardens just a bit. I, uh, um, I wrote a book on faith in the last chapter was a chapter called Between the Gardens, and uh, I began that chapter by talking about Pascal's Wager. Has anybody ever heard about Pascal's Wager? Just raise your hand. <clears throat> same 10 people, um, same, same 10 overachievers. Uh, Pascal's Wager, Pascal is an interesting guy. He was a mathematician, lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, was a Christian guy, had been raised in a Jesuit school, and he was the father of the mathematics of probability. So uh, probability thinking and, and really like how you would parse out um, with gambling, you know, what are the chances that this is going to happen or that's going to happen or whatnot. So a lot of people believe that because of this mathematics, he's really the father of, of the computer in some sense, the math that would allow for ultimately the rise of some of the technology we have today. As a Christian writer, though, uh, he died at a young age but had been filling journals with his thoughts. In the, in the French, the word is pensées, um, which means thoughts. And, and he'd been filling his journals with just kind of random thoughts on Christianity, life, uh, faith, all sorts of things. And he had intended that those thoughts would someday uh, be the basis for a book he was going to write. Um, because he died before that happened, they collected up his papers and they published them under the name of pensées, basically uh, Blaise Pascal's thoughts. Uh, and you read it, and it's just the short kind of truncated aphorisms, and it's fascinating, and there's so much to chew on there. C.S. Lewis uh, is, is been kind of quoted as saying that he never went anywhere without his copy uh, of Pascal with him, that that kind of was, was a companion through his life as he read and reflected on Pascal's thoughts, his pensées. In, in that kind of uh, set of writings, those thoughts, is... Uh, a little kind of mental experiment that has come to be known as Pascal's Wager. Um, so anyone heard of Pascal's Wager? Where are my, where are my 10 people? All right. Um, Pascal's Wager was, here's this probability kind of theorist going, you know what, um, what if we came to this question of Christian belief this idea about whether there is an afterlife or a heaven, whether we will be resurrected into that or not. And we determined whether we should live or whether it was wise to live in light of that um, by looking at the two alternative realities. Meaning, um, if I believe that Jesus uh, rose from the dead, I live my life accordingly, and Jesus, it turns out, did rise from the dead, and I, I find myself in heaven, I win. If, if I live this way, as a Christian, as a believer, with hope in the resurrection, uh, and it turns out that Jesus did not rise from the dead, that there is no life beyond the grave, and, and when I die, that's it, Pascal was arguing, I still win. 
He goes, now if you are a, uh, you know, an, an atheist or someone that's going to reject God, Pascal was arguing, if you find out that one day you're standing before God, you've lost, which, which seems obvious. And then Pascal wanted to say, and the hopelessness you would have in life, certainly fleeting pleasure or the freedom to live your own life the way you wanted to, um, is, is a messy reality at best. And so when you kind of hold the lose with a, I don't know, debatable mixed win versus a win-win on this side, basically Pascal's wager was saying, where would you want to lay your money? Does that make sense? He was simply saying, all things considered, what would be the most prudent place to, to put your bet? Probab uh, probabilistically speaking, I don't know. There's probably a math equation for that somewhere. Um, that's Pascal's wager. And it shows up in philosophy courses and, and people have interacted with it throughout history. And the interesting thing as I've reflected on it is I think that I've come to disagree with a part of the way Pascal formula, uh, formulated this whole thing. Um, that when Pascal was saying, if you're a Christian, um, you win, obviously, if, if it's true, but you win even if it's false because you have this wonderful life. Um, that's the part I think I, I've come to take issue with because it seems to fly in the face of what, what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, that if there is no resurrection, then we are the most pitied of all people that we are in some sense fools, not, not wise because we've placed our bet in the right place, but we're fools because we've placed our bet in the wrong place. And then not only that, but I think when we look at Jesus's words about taking up our, our crosses and following him, that in some sense we're uniting ourselves in the death or the crucifixion of Christ, the baptism that, that really symbolizes that we're somehow joining Jesus in his death in anticipation of also joining him in his resurrection, that, that the troubles and the sorrows that we take on to ourselves or that we're willing to as, uh, assume as Christians, followers of Christ, make this life a very, very difficult or trial-filled life. And that if there is no resurrection or hope in resurrection, actually there's something really broken there. Um, I, I express this in the book here um, in the last chapter by using this phrase, between the gardens. So the chapter title is between the gardens and, and really between the garden of Eden and Zion. It's the garden of Eden in the beginning of Genesis and the garden of Zion when, when God makes the new heavens and the new earth and puts himself back into a garden with the tree of life on both sides of the river of life that's flowing through that city. And so between the gardens of Eden and Zion, we find that we're in this messy middle. So I want to read just briefly from this. It says, the day after Christmas in 2004, a tsunami ravaged the shores of many Asian countries and reached as far as the beaches on the eastern coast of Africa. Many of us will never forget the images and magnitude of suffering that occurred that day, leaving 150,000 dead and millions without homes in 11 countries. The following Sunday, I gave a sermon I called Between the Gardens. And the central theme was that we live between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Zion and the New Jerusalem described in the book of Revelation. Our season, where we live now, is the messy middle. We aspire to, rather than live, in utopia. Um, I continue, in Scripture, this same idea is seen in Joseph's summation of the long, drawn-out struggles of his life. 
What you intended to harm me, God intended for good. Genesis 50 verse 20. It is seen in Job's humility, recognizing a God bigger, grander, and wiser than his own questions and frustrations. It is the resurrection in the new covenant, which charts a radically new course and opens up a new chapter following all that had come before. What's past is truly prologue, as Shakespeare wrote. In the current chapter of the story, much of what we, call, uh, we are called to is suffering, however. We know pain, we experience brokenness, we endure heartache, shame, and loss. And like Shakespeare's Antonio, who said what's past is prologue, however, we can see that this uh, suffering is simply the setting setting of the scene for the really great stuff. We are living the prologue and the final drama still dances on the horizon. We know it by intuition, we sense it by desire, we reach for it by necessity. The tensions of this broken world come to the surface most dramatically in disasters and tragedies. Cheap answers and religious quick fixes don't really work. Instead, they leave us wanting something solid and hoping to find bedrock on which to build the foundation of our lives. Our hope can't simply be in the fixing of present circumstances. Instead, it has to be grounded in the future garden when all is made right. If we talk about living by faith, a large part must seek its ultimate resolution in the promised consummation, not in this life of struggle. In other words, we're not going to find the win, the justification uh, in this life where where we're carrying the cross. Beauty does come from ashes. Darkness does turn to light. And when we as strangers here arrive at our heavenly home, what's past will have truly been only the prologue. Um, so this idea that we're living in this messy middle between the gardens where natural disasters happen, where things don't go the way you planned, where you run into unexpected pitfalls, where people that you thought were going were gonna to be walking by your side turn on you. Um, it's, it's a life that, that is filled with pain. And what's interesting, so as we were coming to this Easter, having kind of explored these themes of, of the gardens for a while, um, Pastor Pete was reminding me that the resurrection story is also anchored in another garden. So if you have uh, your Bible, you can turn it. It'll be on the screen too, but you can turn to John chapter 20. And what we see is that there's a garden narrative that unfolds in between these gardens of Eden and Zion. Uh, that we started in Eden, that garden was wrecked. We, we look to Zion where it's all going to be restored. But this drama that unfolds with the gospel, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, also is set in a garden. So I'm going to read starting in, in uh, verse 11 of John chapter 20. And it says, Now Mary stood outside of the tomb crying uh, on Easter morning. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I I don't know where they have put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, um, one of his dearest friends. I mean, just think of how you would talk to one of your best friends, the way you would say their name, right? And they would immediately recognize you. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, uh, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
And then it continues as she goes and runs and tells the disciples about the resurrection. But the interesting part here is that she thinks he's a gardener. That word gardener, depending on which translation you use, only shows up twice or one time in the whole Bible. Right here. It was shocking to me. I thought uh, the word garden shows up quite a bit, but gardener only shows up at most two times in all of Scripture. And so why does she think he's the gardener? Because Jesus, when he was taken down um, from the cross, was, was put into a garden tomb. So there was a tomb cut out in a garden. Jesus is placed there after he dies. And three days later, when Jesus is resurrected, when she goes to where he was buried, she is in a garden. And so that morning when she sees not very many people around and she sees this person walking towards her, she assumes, makes the logical assumption, that this is the gardener. Fascinating thing, if we look back to some of Jesus' words uh, right before his death, we see in John 12, 24, that he says this. Um, This is basically as he's coming into his last week Uh, of his life. From John chapter 12, certainly from chapter 13, all the way through the end of the gospel of John is basically one week of time. We we really see the the last kind of um, intimate details of Jesus's final week in the gospel of John. It slows way down as we watch and kind of see this whole thing unfold. But in John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus is kind of foretelling what's to come. And he says, Very truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So the spiritual metaphor here, which is really fascinating, is that Jesus was planted into the garden uh, the day of his death. And then three days later is now uh, risen as the first fruits of, of the resurrection life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So picture what's happening between the gardens when we get to this kind of garden area where the tomb is, that Jesus now with a broken body and in death is planted into that garden and three days later, like he foretold, is now raised up the first kind of fruit of what will happen to all of those who follow Jesus. Jesus said when he was bringing Lazarus back from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will never die. Jesus is throughout this whole period trying to teach the idea that when you come to me, when you become what would later be known as a Christian, that you are walking through a door into new life and you have have no fear of death or the grave. And this narrative here, set in a garden between the two ultimate gardens, beginning and end, is showing us this gospel, that Jesus who died for us also rose on the third day so that those of us who die with him, who identify in his sufferings, who follow him through this difficult, challenging life where he said we will have many troubles, we can also look with hope to the resurrection where we are going to be um, living the life he, he, he came for us to have. Okay, does that kind of, in a nutshell, put it there? So I want to just switch gears a little bit and talk about definitions of things because this was interesting. I was looking this up uh, for something else this week on Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary, right? 
Um, there's a lot of online dictionaries, by the way, but this was the Merriam-Webster one. And I was looking up um, some definition of things. And if you go to the online Merriam-Webster dictionary, they do the definition, then the etymology, then they do a definition for students, and then they do a definition for um, people that are learning English as a second language. And it's, it's fascinating. They break it down into kind of different or more simplistic ways of, of understanding it. So here's the definition of, of sermon. Um, a definition of sermon is this, a religious discourse delivered in public, usually by a member of clergy as part of a worship service. It sounds really great. That's what I'm doing right now. Uh, this is a religious discourse. <laughs> Makes me sound so smart. Um, uh, and then the, the second part of a, a sermon is a, a speech on conduct or duty, which I thought was really interesting. Um, don't preach at me, right? I mean, that's, where do you think that phrase comes from? Is that when someone starts just talking real black and white to you about your duty and, and making you feel like you're being pushed around, we kind of react to that and say, don't preach at me. That's technically in the definition. Um, so there you go. Um, so here's the definition of a sermon for students. A speech, a speech, usually by a priest, minister, or rabbi for the purpose of giving religious instruction. Um, and then the second part of the definition is a serious talk to a person about his or her conduct, right? Which is the way all junior hires interpret sermons. Um, but it's interesting how it's been reduced to kind of this one-dimensional, ethical kind of talk on duty, right? So here's another one, uh, definition of prophecy, an inspired utterance of a prophet. Uh, second one, the function or vocation of a prophet, specifically the inspired declaration of divine will and purpose, making known what God's will or purpose is. Third one, a prediction of something to come. I think this is what we typically think of when we talk about prophecy is a prediction of the future. Actually, biblically speaking, um, prophecy was truth-telling, often about current situations, only uh, every now and then about future situations. So the dominant reality actually is the number two definition here, which is the inspired declaration of divine will or purpose. So now here's the definition of prophecy for students. And now they've taken the middle one, which is the dominant part of prophecy, and gotten rid of it altogether. And we're left with kind of a redacted form of number one and number two. Number one, something foretold or a prediction. Number two, the ability to predict, uh, to predict what will happen in the future. The ability to predict what will happen in the future. So a prophet or prophecy for students completely takes the truth-telling element out of it and makes it all about kind of the future, the, the, the really fanciful part of prophecy. So what was really interesting to me when I was looking at this was this idea that we often will take and, and simplify down religious concepts to make them easier to understand, but in doing so, we can actually collapse out of them um, the real heartbeat or, or kind of the essence of what they're supposed to be. Does that make sense? I think we do that with the gospel. The gospel is Jesus um, as God come near, Emmanuel, God with us, who goes to the cross 
and experiences all of the death and, and what is wrong in the world in that moment, all the betrayal, all the pain, and then three days later is, is raised from the dead and comes back grounding our hope in the resurrection so that we truly understand, like Paul says, that, that we can we can join into this thing and not be fools, that there's a reason why we're Christians, that this story that's going on there with these two dominant realities, cross and, and resurrection, that we oversimplify the gospel sometimes um, instead of taking two lenses that when they're aligned, bring things into focus, we collapse it down to either the cross or the resurrection. Now, think about it. Um, there is no resurrection without the cross. Like just functionally speaking, there is no resurrection without the cross. And without the resurrection, the cross, 1 Corinthians 15, is empty. It's meaningless. You know, many people were crucified. Right? Many people were crucified. Only one raised himself from the dead. So these two things working together bring into focus the story, the good news, the gospel of what God is doing in our lives. So what happens though when we, we crush it together and take only one of those two as kind of our dominant understanding or a hook for what our faith really is? Um, I was looking through um, Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was the German theologian uh, who Hitler had killed uh, literally a week before his concentration camp in a, in a city called Flossenburg uh, was liberated by Allied troops. So right at the very end, um, he dies. This is a compilation of his writings. And what was fascinating to me about it, it was written in Feb on February 21st, 1932, regarding the, the day of national mourning that they used to have in Germany between the two world wars, remembering what they knew as the Great War or, um, yeah. Um, and so here's Bonhoeffer writing a sermon on the National Day of Mourning in Germany in 1932, which is about the same time that the Nazis come to power. And I want to read a little bit from this. It says, who would not be disturbed to ask what is the meaning of the 1914 to 1918 event what is the meaning of the millions of dead German men for me, for us today? How does God speak through this? That means still one more time to ask quite simply, how can I put into one thought the idea of God, Christ, and the event of war? Should I say it was an action of God or should I give up hope and say, Here's God's, uh, here God's might was at an end, here uh, Christ was far distant? And so he's basically grappling with how do I go to a bunch of Christian people in light of the fact of all these persons who died. And he says, now shouldn't we be asking the same things about the cross? And is it not precisely here that the answer is given that stands over the whole Christian message? Christ goes through the cross and only through the cross to life, to the resurrection, to victory. The wondrous theme of the Bible that frightens so many people is that the only visible sign of God in the world is the cross. Christ is not carried away from earth to heaven in glory, but he must go to the cross. And precisely there where the cross stands, the resurrection is near. Even there where everyone begins to doubt God, where everyone despairs of God's power, there God is whole, there Christ is active and near. 
Where it is on a razor's edge, whether one becomes faithless or remains loyal, there God is and there Christ is. He continues on in this little chunk and says, Christ, however, knows that his way goes to the cross, that also the way for his disciples, you and me today, living in America, in Bend, Oregon, does not lead gloriously and safely directly into heaven, but that they also must go through the darkness through the cross. Also, they must struggle. For that reason, the first sign of the nearness of Christ, worthy enough of him, is that their enemies become great, that the power of temptation, of apostasy, of unfaithfulness becomes strong, that their congregation would be led right up to the abyss of confusion about God. That the cross is not just a pretty metaphor of Christ's life and teachings, but the cross is the way in which his followers also pass uh, from death through suffering to life. This is what Bonhoeffer is arguing. Um, and I, I find this fascinating because I had a, a revelation recently in my life. I don't know I think we all do this. We'll go years and years and years and then all of a sudden we'll catch a glimpse of ourselves um, that we hadn't seen before or that we were unaware of. It was a hidden part of us. And, uh, it was a couple weeks ago. I was, I was at a, a board meeting for an organization in Washington, D.C. I was there doing some consulting around uh, race issues, specifically with regard um, to the dominant culture and privilege and, and this um, rather large Christian organization and what they were navigating and trying to figure out. And as I was sitting there watching another pastor, I, I saw in him um, that I realized this kind of challenging conversation and what it meant for him was not what he envisioned when he became a pastor. It was not what he envisioned when he um, helped found this organization. It was not what he was envisioning when he was coming off of one success and created something else thinking it would be successful also. This pastor, uh, with all of his good motives, was excited about birthing something that would grow and be successful and work for him. And I realized in looking at this pastor that, that I am exactly the same. Um, let me give you a little context. I became a pastor because I, I believe in the local church, because I love God, because I feel like God called me to it, and because I really want to spend my life teaching, because this matters to me, right? Here's the insight, though. Um, I don't know what percent it is, but I, I know now, looking back and kind of seeing myself uh, looking at this guy as if I was looking in a mirror, that a part of the reason why I became a pastor is because I was working off of the assumption that this was a good career choice that made sense in my life and that I could be successful at um, in, in, in my pursuits to have a good life, be able to provide for a family and, and, and be successful. Like the guys that I went to seminary with that had Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and Chuck Swindoll as our idols and that we looked to, we were looking at them and seeing an example of, of what it could look like to be a successful pastor. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? I'm saying that there's, there's 10% of me that's a fraud or has been um, that I was unaware of. 
that I didn't choose to become a pastor because I fully understood it would be a, a, a giving up my life and choosing the path of death, paying a cost. I had, as, as a middle-class guy getting a lot of education, a picture in my mind of how I could choose this path and that it would actually be one of life, not of death. I have friends in the inner city of Chicago um, who are pastors, I have friends who are in the, the inner city or downtown Houston that are pastors and their choice to be a pastor in their communities was born out of a very, very different realization and, and kind of framework or paradigm. For them, it was, I am going to go into this community and die to give my life up completely, my, my hope of economic gain, my hope of being successful to the masses uh, on, this, on kind of the, the national scale, the, the hope of ever getting book deals, the hope of ever anything, because I'm ministering now to the down and out or the forgotten or the left behind that aren't gonna come into my church with the money to tithe, aren't gonna come into my church ready to be elders, and, and frankly, aren't gonna come into my church as stable people, but are often going through things that they're gonna slip back into behaviors or, or whatever it might be. And all the while, on Saturdays and Sundays, not always going to sports, but often going to funerals of teenage boys that are being shot in the neighborhood. Do, I mean, do you see that picture? And I guess when I was in DC looking at this other pastor, I realized that there's a generation of me that, that took our vocation partly because it made sense according to Pascal's wager. This is a, this is a good um, idea. Like, I mean, how can I really go wrong with this? There might be some trials. Um, but I can be successful. I, it wasn't the dominant thing, but I realize now that gets hidden in there. It's being stripped away from me because as I've started dealing with more hot topics or more contemporary issues or issues that the church isn't familiar talking about, I've lost friends, I've been slandered, I've, I've found that I'm, I'm, I'm now going into a headwind where the cost is a lot greater and I'm learning that it actually has a purifying effect. It has a purifying effect. I, um, Tamara doesn't know this. She asked me last night um, if I needed a shirt ironed. I told her no because she was ironing all these dresses. Um, I told her no. Um, and then this morning I realized uh, my shirt was still in a bag from a couple weeks ago. And it was like, you know, all kind of folded up in a bag. Um, and I knew that I couldn't ask anyone to help me iron. And I actually am incompetent when it comes to ironing. Um, and so I really sat there for a few minutes trying to think, what should I do? And I ran and put my shirt in the dryer with, with a bunch of other kind of whites, uh, as we would call them, white clothes, that, that had been there from the night before and, and turned it on thinking maybe this would help. And sure enough, like 10 minutes later, it's perfect. Tamara has no idea. Um, <laughs> but the heat works out the wrinkles, um, we, are, we are pruned with shears. God shapes us like the potter with clay when we're most malleable, or if we're not malleable, the greater amount of force needs to be used, right? The, the growth that's gonna come in my life isn't gonna come through 
experiencing the American dream and going, isn't this amazing that God is blessing my life? The growth in my life is gonna come through the trials and the difficulties I face that allow me to be redeemed in the parts of me that are actually hidden from me and that I don't even know are there. Um, so where does this go? I think we miss the cross part um, in America, what that really means that we're gonna identify with Jesus and his sufferings. I think we also miss the resurrection part. I grew up um, in a culture where when you were gonna meet Jesus or become a Christian, the only thing that was talked about was Jesus died for your sins and if you believe that, then that death is applied to you for your sins and now you, you're, you're saved. That, that's really talking only about the cross. I wanna read from you uh, the book of Acts. Here's the book of Acts. Um, and I could read from you for, from, from different places in the New Testament, but here's just Acts. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, uh, for one of these must become a witness of, uh, with us of his resurrection. So the disciples are now going to choose the next apostle. And they're saying, we have to choose somebody that has been with us the whole time because somebody else needs to be a witness of the resurrection. Acts chapter 2. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his, his body see decay. Peter is now giving the sermon at Pentecost, and he's talking about how David, back in, in the book of Psalms, talks about God's Holy One not seeing decay. He spoke of the resurrection. Acts 4, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching, these are the religious leaders of the day, because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they are, are now going to try and detain and arrest the apostles. Acts 4.33, with great power the apostles continued to testify when they're let out of jail of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Acts 17.18, this is uh, Paul now in Athens and, and a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Epicureans taking their name from Epicurus, kind of a, a Greek philosopher. The Stoic philosophers uh, in the Greek marketplace, they had these, these uh, stoas, which is basically like a porch or an overhang. And the Stoics would hang out there. They were kind of the, the, the teachers of the people, so to speak. And they would hang out under the Stoas and then they became known as Stoics. And their teaching is Stoicism. And, and so you've got these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, that are debating with Jesus. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news, gospel, about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, when they heard, Acts 17, 32, just a little bit later, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. Let's do this again. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow? Acts 23, 6, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Sadducees didn't believe it. They were kind of fatalists or deists, you might say. The Pharisees, much more in line with, with what Christians uh, historically believe. And, and Paul starts this argument going, no, the hinge point is the resurrection. And that's what I'm coming to tell you about. Acts 23, 8. Uh, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. 
and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe in these things. Acts 24, 15. And I have the same hope in God as these men, uh, men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Later on, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So we see this interesting thing that all through the book of Acts, when people are preaching the gospel, what they're preaching is the resurrection. Obviously, the, 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 Jesus was crucified. Remember, there is no resurrection without crucifixion. But it is the resurrection that is this moment, this Easter Sunday celebration moment where we now realize our hope is not in vain and we can put our hope in Jesus. So sometimes we miss the cross and what it means for us as followers of Christ. Sometimes I think in America, we preach this kind of forgiveness that becomes a little bit consumeristic. I'll take that grace, thank you very much. Um, and then we walk forward not really knowing how to locate ourselves as followers of Christ. In the New Testament, it was the resurrection that was the, the dominant kind of insertion into the conversation that caused people either to accept or to reject Jesus. Jesus was the stumbling block. It was the resurrection specifically of Jesus Christ that was the stumbling block causing some to walk away or some to believe. And so we have these two things that have to be aligned for it to be in focus. We have this tendency to kind of grab one or the other. And in doing so, we miss the heart of what this good news or the gospel is. First Peter 1.3, it's, it's on the screen, but it simply says this. Um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to read that. You can, you can just mumble it under your breath if you want. Read this with me. This is the summation of why we are here this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason we're here this morning is because there is such a thing as the church, which Antioch is, is an example of. And that church, the church of Jesus Christ in all denominations, has existed for 2,000 years. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that church. Why is he the cornerstone? Because he rose from the dead. We are here this morning in Bend, Oregon, with a direct connection all the way back through the church, through history, to the moment when this all gets its birth at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are Christians because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to just take us back real quickly to Bonhoeffer, um, who I think was arguing that the resurrection is the anchor to our gospel, that, that if we miss it, we have an incomplete understanding of God's work in the world through Jesus. And he says this, the day of national mourning in the church. What does it mean? It means the raising up of one great hope from which we all live, the sermon concerning the kingdom of God. It means that we see the past about which, which we think of today with all its terrors and all its godlessness. And we are still not to be afraid, but we hear the sermon on peace as well. It means that this must come about so that the end comes, so that God remains the Lord it means that we rightfully mourn over the dead of the world war when we stand in the same faithfulness in which they stood out there 
So we now deliver the message of peace and preach so much louder the kingdom on which account death had to be. It means to look beyond the borders of our people over the whole earth and pray that the gospel of the kingdom that sets an end to all war will come to all peoples and that then the end comes and Christ draws near. Day of national mourning in the church, that means that God is near us in the cross and it means looking at Christ upon the cross who conquered through the cross. Day of national mourning in the church, that means through the resurrection, knowing that Christ alone conquers. We live between two gardens. Jesus was sown into the garden as a seed that must die and then is raised three days later as the harbinger of a new life that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of this book, at the end of the chapter uh, titled Between the Gardens, I put a poem of C.S. Lewis. There was a garden path around Oxford that C.S. Lewis used to always walk. It was named after a guy back in the 1700s, I think, by the name of Joseph Addison. It's called Addison's Walk. On that walk is where J.R.R. Tolkien led C.S. Lewis to the Lord. So here's this walk that Lewis goes around, garden walk, where he became a Christian. He wrote a poem about it, and they now have it in a plaque Um, right there as you enter this path, the gate to this path. And here's what Lewis wrote, and we're going to close with this. It's, It's titled, What the Bird Said Early in the Year. I heard in Addison's walk a bird sing clear. This year the summer will come. Uh, This year the summer will come true. This year, this year. Winds will not strip the blossom from the apple trees. This year, nor want of rain destroy the peas. This year, time's nature will no more defeat you, nor all the promised moments in their passing cheat you. This time, they will not lead you round and back to autumn, one year older, by the well-worn track. This year, this year, as all these flowers foretell, we shall escape the circle and undo the spell. Oft, oft deceived, yet open once again your heart. Quick, 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 the gates are drawn apart. This Easter morning, we're here in anticipation with our hope anchored in the cross that the gates are drawn apart. Father, we commit this morning to you knowing that we live into the story that you have authored, that our hope is not in vain, that we can live by faith in your son, the the Jesus who was crucified and then risen, that even if we have the smallest of faith, even if we're wrestling with our faith, that you can take that little, work with it, and move us forward. And so we come to you today as a congregation saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lead us on and give us the light of the hope of the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.